look at God's word. I wonder, is there any Bob Dylan fans out here? Anybody like Bob Dylan? A lot of, a lot of people here. Um, so you may recall the, the uh, 1985, We Are the World. We are the children. We are the ones who make a brighter day, so let's start giving. And that was the, the lyrics, the main refrain from the Live Aid concert. And some of you weren't even alive back then, but um, Bob Dylan was one of the main recruits to sing this song. And his lyrics that he was actually given to sing was there's a choice we're making, we're saving our own lives, it's true we make a brighter day, just you and me. Well, Dylan was clearly annoyed when he sang the song and he did one of these rare interviews with 60 Minutes and uh, he said in the interview, quote, people buying the song and the money going to starving people in Africa is you know, a worthwhile idea but I wasn't so convinced about the message of the song to tell you the truth. I don't think people can save, yourself, save themselves, you know. And Bob Brown, the ABC person says, save themselves in any sort of, I just don't agree with that type of thing, Dylan says. And so Dylan was flat out against a message that humankind could save itself. Now, we could go into proximates and ultimates and primary and secondary, and, and secondarily, I think we can truly help one another, obviously, ultimately, I don't think we can. What about you this morning? Do you agree with what Bob Dylan is, is saying and that sort of thing? Do you, do you see Christmas as good news? You know, because here's the interesting thing. Jesus coming down from heaven to visit us is actually an indictment on our condition. You might recall the, the famous line from Julius Caesar by Shakespeare. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. You see, if that's true, we need a Messiah, one who will come and save, not just from political oppression or the bondage of all these other people and bondage of others, but we need a Messiah to actually deliver us from ourselves and our personal bondage that we have with sin. Tim Keller says, simple quote, he says, in every other religion, you're saved by doing what the teacher said. But in Christianity, you're saved by what the Savior has done. He comes down from heaven. Paul Tripp has got this wonderful little Advent devotional book, and he says this. He says, good news is only good news to people who know that they need good news. $10 is extremely good news to a poor man, but would, hardly, would not even get noticed by a rich man. The promise of healing is wonderfully good news to a very sick woman, but would not even get the attention of a woman who's in good health. Jesus' birth is both the worst and best news ever, and understanding both will change your life forever. It is humbling to accept that Christ came in the person of Jesus to live the way that we were created to live, but would never live, to die the death that each one of us deserves to die and rise out of the tomb, defeating sin and death because there was simply no other way. God knew that our condition was so desperately grave that he was willing to go to this extent to reach and rescue us. Then he says, ponder the fact that God was willing to control the events of human history to bring the world to the place where conditions were right for Jesus to come simply because we, didn't have, we had no power whatsoever to help ourselves out of our desperate state. Humanity was so incredibly messed up that there was only one solution for us, God himself. So confessing our brokenness is the only way we'll really understand and celebrate the birth of the Messiah. And so keep that in mind 
as we look at these seven verses, this prophecy 700 years before Christ came. And we are told in these seven verses what the Messiah will do when he comes. That's verses one to five. Who the Messiah is, that's verse six. And how God's gonna change the world to the Messiah, that's verse seven. So let's hear God's word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light dawned. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we need your help by your spirit to understand what your spirit is saying to the church. We ask that you would open up this text to us. Help me to preach it. Pray that we would see Christ and what he has done and who he is. We ask in your name, amen. I'm sure many of you, when you heard this, you probably thought of Handel's Messiah, maybe. Did anybody have that come to, you know, the wonderful counselor? so I did a little bit of reading about Handel's Messiah this week. It was, it was composed, what's amazing about Handel's Messiah, many things, but it was composed so quickly. Somewhere between three and four weeks in August and September of 1741, and Handel would literally write from morning to night. And what's amazing is apparently the, the, it was a 259-page score. And so there's roughly a quarter of a million notes in the Messiah. And so at working three weeks of 10-hour days, Handel would have had to have a continuous pace of writing about 15 notes a minute. And many believe that he was inspired, that he was having his own revival as he was holed up in his room, meditating on the script that was given to him, which is mainly a lot of these verses in Isaiah, like this very text. And as he wrestled with the text, God began to give him these notes, and he just kept writing and writing, and we're still singing Handel's Messiah. It was originally meant for Easter. Uh, A lot of the songs are about Easter, and only one of the four sections is about the birth, but we've turned it into a Christmas oratorio, and it's wonderful. Well, let's get back to the text. What will happen when Messiah comes? Who Messiah is? How is the Messiah changing the world? The backdrop of Isaiah 9 is Isaiah 8. So if you read the last verse of Isaiah 8, good news or bad news? They will look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness, and the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. 
We don't even have any concept about darkness because we have this thing called electricity and we got this thing called batteries and flashlights and we have more lights than we can possibly imagine. But in this day and age, when you didn't have any of those things, if you didn't know and get landed before the sun went down and know where you're gonna be and get securely placed before the sun went down, you were in a world of trouble. A world of trouble. It would be thick darkness. Have you ever been lost and had it getting dark? That's a scary feeling. And for the people here, the backdrop of this story is God has been talking about judgment and that he's bringing judgment down on Israel for their disobedience, for their idolatry, the kings who weren't like King David. They're always being compared to David, but they weren't like David. And this particular king is Ahaz, and Ahaz is given an opportunity to trust the Lord, but no, he wants to trust in political alliances. And so he wants to call upon uh, the Assyrians to come and actually help him. And so he calls on uh, a king rather than calling on the Lord to help him. And he calls on Tiglath-Pileser to come and help him. He takes the silver and the gold from the house of the Lord and he sends them as a present to the king of Assyria, trusting in, in money and means and, and in uh, these valuables to win the king. And so, he's, so the king does come and help him. But then Ahaz goes and learns the way of the Assyrians. He copies their altars, he mimics them. And then he, he gets Uriah the priest to mimic the worship of the Assyrians and he even offers up his own son in the fire. And in the midst of this idolatry, God has had enough of Israel trying to be like all the other nations. And God is bringing judgment down on Israel and he's saying that they're gonna be conquered actually by the Assyrians and they're gonna be, and the northern kingdom is gonna be conquered in 722 BC and Isaiah is writing right into that time frame. And the reason that it's such darkness as you see in chapter nine as it begins is judgment always came down from the north. The nations always invaded from the north and so the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali that was in the northern area, and that's where the Assyrians were going to come. And so, in the midst of this distress, darkness, and gloom of anguish, God offers good news. In the midst of this judgment that's gonna begin in the north, God is gonna bring something from the north that's gonna be hope. And the hope is described as light in verse one. Just as darkness leads to depression and bad news and a lack of hope and you know darkness as it's described in the Bible, you know, it often describes sin and being in bondage to sin, but in the Old Testament, it's often when we're just blind and we don't know where we're going, and that's called darkness. And so God is bringing something new. He's bringing in light, and so if you see the contrast, there's a lot of contrast in these very few verses of what, as God is bringing a complete reversal through the Messiah. The world's turned upside down, it's full of darkness and God's gonna bring about light through the Messiah. It's full of um, oppression. It's full of uh, bondage in verse four and God's gonna bring liberty and he's gonna break that bondage. And in the midst of anguish and doom in verse three, you have nothing but joy. We have joy, they rejoice as with joy and they're glad and God's gonna bring joy in the midst of this. And so he's gonna do it to this little baby and the government's gonna be on his shoulders and not on ours. And the government shall always be increasing. 
as Ray Ortland Jr. says, it will be forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying. I almost think of it like, you know, they tell us the universe is always expanding, you know? God's kingdom is doing that. It's always expanding. It's always increasing. The increase of his government and of his peace, there'll be no end. And you may look around and think, man, the church is shrinking. The church is shrinking in Europe. The church is shrinking in the U.S. It's growing massively worldwide. We just happen to be in the wrong hemisphere. But in the southern hemisphere, in Africa, and over in, in uh, South America, and in Asia, the gospel's exploding. And the kingdom is growing like it never has. And so, the good news is that this kingdom, we will never say, well, there's the limit of it. We will, we will always, even if, if times in the church where the church looks with its naked eye and it sees that the church is in decline and waning. God's promise is wrapped in his zeal. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies is saying he will do this. He's doing it through his son. And so let's take a look at this government. This government has a king. We are told that the king will be on the throne of David. And so if you saw, if you, Heard earlier in the service, there's lots of echoes. We kept using this, you know, if you had to say in the Bible, what are the two greatest promises in the Old Testament? If I were to say, get out a pen and paper, write the two greatest promises in the Old Testament. You say, well, I've never read the Old Testament. Well, if you never have, I'm gonna give you the answer. There's two, two of the biggest massive promises that keep getting repeated over and over and over again. What are they? God made a promise to Abraham that I am gonna give you this land. And through your seed, all the nations are gonna be blessed. That one's gonna come and it's gonna crush the serpent's head and it's gonna come from the seed of the woman. And that great promise to Abraham is gonna be fulfilled. That's a big promise, keeps getting repeated, gets repeated a lot in the New Testament. But the other big one was God made a promise to David that there will be a descendant on your throne forever. And we've repeated that like five times in the service so far. So I hope hope that you've caught that one by now. Like, that's a big one. So those are the two big puppies. And and Jesus is the oak tree that comes, and, and he is, you know, that was a little acorns that got planted, and it came up, and Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. And so we're seeing this promise again here in the Old Testament, promise to us, that, that Jesus is gonna be the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 prophecy where the king, that David is gonna have a descendant that's gonna be on the throne of David forever. And so the virgin is gonna conceive, we're told in Isaiah 7, and the virgin, and you're gonna call his name Emmanuel. And he's gonna start very small. It's gonna be this insignificant little baby. In Isaiah, he's called a root or a, a stump of Jesse or a branch. And yet from this root, from this stump, and from this branch, we are told later in Isaiah that the spirit of the Lord will be upon him. He'll be anointed to bring good news to the poor. He's gonna bind up brokenhearted, bring liberty to captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound. He will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. He will comfort all who mourn. He will grant those who mourn in Zion, he will grant them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. 
And so what we have here is Isaiah is looking to a day when, when, mightier, when one is gonna come who's mightier than the Assyrians of, the, of that world in which he's writing. is gonna break the Assyrian yoke to pieces and he's gonna bring a new yoke. And what does Jesus say about his yoke? Because the yoke doesn't look very good in verse four, does it? The yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. That's the idea of getting beat with lashes and a rod. And that's what Assyrian rule was doing. And, and it says it's gonna be broken as in the days of Midian. And if you remember Midian, that's the story of Gideon. And the days of the Midianites were the people were scared to death. They were living in the rocks and the caves and hiding themselves because the Midianites would come and pillage the land, take all their crops, all their food, and just kept plundering them. And they cried out for a judge and God raised up Gideon. And he says, the Lord is with you, what? Mighty man of valor. And Jesus is now El Gabor, he's mighty God. This is gonna be somebody much greater than Gideon. Gideon was just a mighty man. This is gonna be mighty God. And he's gonna deliver much better than Gideon ever did. And God had to windle Gideon's army down to 300, you remember that? so that they wouldn't take praise for themselves that they had won the victory, that they would know that it was God who radically delivered them. And just as God radically delivered in that day with Gideon, he's gonna bring a new yoke and a new leadership. And this leadership is gonna come from this baby and this leadership is not gonna be tyranny. He's gonna bring in his kingdom with justice and righteousness. That's how Jesus is bringing in this new kingdom. And then we're told in verse five what it's gonna look like, that every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And the picture here in verse five is a big bonfire. And instead of Israel and, and all of their garments being the, the spoil, they are gonna take all the, the garments of the Assyrians and all the, and they're gonna, it's just gonna be a big bonfire because there's gonna be a great victory that God is gonna bring. And so God is undoing, he's bringing in his new kingdom. And so this is despite Israel's rejection of God's word through Isaiah, it was despite Ahaz rejecting this word God is gonna do something by his grace for his people. And he's writing 700 years in advance of what it's gonna look like. Now, what's interesting is this very passage in Isaiah 9, verse uh, one and two, those first three verses is gonna be the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Do you remember that? So, um, you, you may recall Nathaniel, when Philip tried to minister to Nathaniel in John chapter one, and Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, are you kidding? No prophet comes from Galilee, because that was up in the north. And the north is like, that's a bad neighborhood, bad environment, don't wanna live there, because that's where all the bad things happen. And when the enemy comes, and here they come again, and they always come from the north, and they come down. And so can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, anytime anything comes down from Nazareth, it's an invader and we're gonna get pillaged and plundered and we're gonna be on the boot and under the rod and under the yoke of oppression and here we go again. And we're told in Matthew 4, 12 to 17, that when Jesus 
heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was broken by the prophet of Israel, by the prophet Israel might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people invading in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light is dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do we have those two slides? Can we go back to those two slides? I don't see. Of the, okay, so this is what I wanted to show you, is that if you can see the line that goes down the middle, that's the Jordan River, and the big body of water, that's the Dead Sea, and then the top one up there is the Sea of Galilee, and that's where Jesus begins his ministry. You can't see it real well, but you can see where it says Asher, Nephthali, and Zebulun. Those are all the northern areas, and they would, that's where all the invaders always came from. So Jesus' ministry is just a little bit west of the Sea of Galilee, and he obviously starts it on the Sea of Galilee. Now go to the next picture, and once again, you have to have good eyesight to see that. But hopefully you can see Galilee up top up there and you can see the Sea of Galilee and you can see Capernaum and Cana. That's where Jesus did his first miracle. And um, so it was right there where Jesus began his ministry. That's where Jesus brings in Isaiah 9 and says, here I am. The light has dawned. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. And when he rose from the dead, what does he say? Meet me where? Meet me in Galilee, Galilee, because he's the gent it's to the nations that this gospel is going because he's fulfilling Isaiah 9 that it says that there's gonna be this increase. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice with you. This is like a, a harvest party and now they're gonna be glad when they divide the spoil and when Jesus ascends to heaven, the spoil is spread to the church and the gifts are given out to the church. But it's there at Galilee that Jesus is fulfilling this very verse that he's going to make something new. He's, it's the Galilee of the nations in Galilee. That's where Jesus is fulfilling these very promises. And so what you're probably wondering this morning is, is this a spiritual kingdom or is this a physical kingdom? Is it a spiritual government or is it a physical government? And so Jesus comes saying, repent, the kingdom is at hand. And so I would say to you, ultimately, it's a spiritual government, right? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, I have come as a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And so he is bringing his, his spiritual kingdom and the kingdom principles to bear, which we've been preaching on the parables of what that kingdom looks like. And so Jesus comes to connect the vertical first. He comes to connect the vertical dots first. And the vertical is what was broken between us and God. And so he's bringing folks from darkness and sin to light to those who have no hope. And we, and we are told we are without God and hopeless if Jesus hadn't come, and that's where the Gentiles were, and those who are oppressed and burdened by sin, and the Bible speaks of sin as a much greater oppressor than any army or any invading country. Of verse four, the greater bondage, Jesus says, is that we're slaves to sin. And so Jesus comes to undo verse four 
by connecting the vertical dots first, but it is gonna have massive horizontal dimensions because God's not done yet. But the problem has to be first fixed vertically. You see, liberation theology, the problem with liberation theology is it only focuses on the horizontal is that Jesus comes and he just comes to, to make everything right horizontally and so that there's no oppression. And he doesn't talk about the vertical. But the problem often with evangelicalism is that we only talk about the vertical and get right with God and we don't talk about all the implications of how we're to live out justice and mercy in this world and fight against oppression as his people. And we're to do both but we recognize that the vertical must be taken care of first. And so, um, to make God's, this is a quote from a commentary, it says, to make God's promises primarily political is to overlook the profound insight of the New Testament and of the Old Testament that the chief reason for the absence of shalom, harmonious relationship amongst human beings, is the absence of shalom between God and human beings through sin. Without shalom between persons, freedom cannot long exist but to act as if the forgiveness of sin and consequent personal relationships are all that matters is to succumb to a platonic distinction of existence into a real spiritual world and an unreal physical world, a distinction which is thoroughly unbiblical. The Messiah lifts the yoke of sin in order to lift the yoke of oppression, and the church must forget neither either yoke. We're to take on both. And so this is what the early church did. The early church, as they got freed from sin and, and released and took on the yoke of Christ and became his followers of the embodiment of love in this world. I just got done reading the Rodney Stark's The History of Christianity, and this is, this is a brilliant sociologist who's not a believer. He writes in Ivy League circles, and he's written a book called The History of Christianity. And he, he is writing of how, how could Christianity turn the Roman world upside down in 300 years? Here's his answer. In the book's closing chapters, I will examine how Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and extended sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. And when the plague hit and everybody was fleeing the city, the Christians stayed because they didn't care about their life. It, they, they were known as, as having a contempt for death. They didn't care because Jesus had broken into their lives and they have everlasting life. And so this life is not all there is. And as a result, they radically loved the world and changed these cities and cared for one another. Now let's look at how Isaiah describes this Messiah he describes in, ver in verse six very carefully to us. He says, a child is born and a son is given. A child is born, he's 100% human. He's born from a virgin, but he's fully flesh. Jesus went down a birth canal. 
Can you imagine? It's unfathomable. Jesus is 100% a human being. He's born. Yet we're told a son is given. You see, it's 100% God. He's the God-man. He became what he was not without ceasing to be what he already was. He's still God, and yet he takes on flesh. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. This son is given. This is God's gift to the world. And Paul looks at this gift, and he cries out in 2 Corinthians 9, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Jesus is the gift of Christmas. And all these other gifts that I'm mentioning are just unwrapping the other gifts that come with Jesus from joy to light to freedom from oppression and to this ex- being a part of this kingdom forever. But the gift is Jesus. And Jesus is called this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He's a mighty God. He's a wonderful counselor. Think about these terms. Wonderful counselor. Jesus never errs. He never exaggerates. He's never at a loss for words. He's never dumbfounded. He never has to say, you know, I have to get back to you on that. I've never thought about that before. He never makes some boneheaded statement. He never says any inappropriate remarks or comments. He's the wonderful counselor. He's wiser than Solomon, and he said that one greater than Solomon is here, and nobody was as wise as Solomon, but he's wiser than Solomon. And Jesus has the people spellbound in the temple when he's only 12 years old and they're astounded at the wisdom at 12 years old when the the greatest leaders of that day and the wisest of men are, are sitting at the feet of Jesus and they're astounded. And they keep saying about him throughout the gospels, with such authority does he teach that he doesn't teach as the other scribes and teachers. And he teaches in these parables and he claims to be the source of true wisdom and we are told that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him in Colossians 2.3 and that he's become our wisdom as he comes down to us. He's our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification and our redemption. Therefore, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's a wonderful counselor. John Piper on, on Luke 1.32 says this, which it, Luke 1.32 is he will be great. And he just said, if you took all the greatest thinkers of every century and every country of the world and put them in a room with Jesus, they would shut their mouths and they would listen to the greatness of his wisdom. All the greatest generals would listen to his strategy. All the greatest musicians would listen to his music theory and his performance on every instrument. There's nothing that Jesus can't do a thousand times better than the person you admire most in any area of human endeavor under the sun. Words fail to fill the greatness of Jesus. He's the wonderful counselor. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. A Christian who feels ashamed of Jesus Christ is like a candle feeling ashamed of the sun. Our Lord Jesus has been appointed the heir of all things. Through him, God created the world. He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe with the word of his power. And Piper says, is there anything great in the world that excites you, that you go out of your way to see or hear? Christ made it. And he's 10 million times greater in every respect, except sin. Paul Tripp in his little devotional on the uh, Advent, on December 15th, he talks about Isaiah 9, 6, and he says, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. And he says, the problem is, is that sin reduces us all to fools. In our foolishness, 
we see the world inside and upside down. We look at what is false and see truth. We look at what is foolish and we see wisdom. And he says that the epicenter of our foolishness is street level denial of God. But as the wonderful counselor, Jesus comes to rescue fools from themselves. And so as Jesus is turning the world upside down here, he's bringing the kingdom, not top down, like, like tyrannical rulers do, he's gonna bring it bottom up from a little baby. And, he, and he's gonna bring the kingdom not outside and go, if, if God would just fix these other people, if he would just fix these politicians, if he would just fix this, if the kingdom would just show up on Air Force One and, and if these countries would just get it right. No, no, the problem is inside here. So this Messiah comes to fix the problem from the inside out, from the bottom up, and he is the wisdom of God. And he comes to save us from our foolishness where the fool says in his heart, there's no God, or basically we don't need him. I can do this in my own strength. But Jesus is, just doesn't come to be our wonderful counselor, he comes to be our mighty God. Paul Tripp says Jesus would unleash almighty power on our half. Sin doesn't just reduce us to fools, it renders us unable. Our big problem is, you know, the idea is I'm fallen and I can't get up. If you remember the commercial from the 80s, that's us spiritually speaking. I've fallen and I can't get up. We cannot get up spiritually. We cannot get to God. That's why God had to come to us. If righteousness could be had any other way, the Bible says Christ died in vain, but God had to come down because we could have never gone up. And so Christ comes by his divine power to give us the grace by his Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out so that now we can please him. And he comes to defeat the great Goliath. And the great Goliath, you know, David defeated Goliath, but Jesus defeated somebody much greater than Goliath. And that's sin, death, and hell. You see, one of the, the ancients, Epicurus, said that, that the greater problem was not annihilation, that after we die, that's it. The greater problem is that we die and that's not it. That's what the ancients were afraid of. That's where Jesus comes to save us by his mighty God. He comes to bind the strong man and he comes to destroy the works of the devil. And for those all, for their whole life are under this lifelong bondage of slavery to death. We're afraid of death and Jesus takes on human nature, we're told in Hebrews 2, and he comes to destroy the devil and destroy that, to take those arrows out of his quiver and he can't shoot us anymore with unforgiven sin. And he can't shoot us that you're gonna die and then you're gonna face the devil and you're gonna face hell and demons and all kinds of scary creatures that you would never want to imagine. That the Bible calls, you know, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We wonder why there's all these horror movies. I think people know there's something out there that shouldn't be messed with. And Jesus comes to deal with the devil. And there's a fight that's going on from the beginning of the Bible to the end, but particularly in Jesus' ministry, it is a fight. And Jesus comes as El Gabor, and that is the idea of hero God. And you go watch Star Wars, and you go watch these because you want to see some hero. Well, let me tell you about hero God. This is true story. He breaks in as the hero of heroes. And every story can't come close to touching this one. He comes to defeat the great Goliath of hell and sin and death. And now he puts the government on his shoulders. So you can resign as CEO of the universe. So you don't have to worry at night. So you don't have to be so anxious about what's going on because I'm trying to be God. I'm trying to control everything. I'm trying to put the government on my shoulders. And it's a pretty big government when I'm trying to run the universe. 
But when I resign as CEO, then I can have rest and I take his yoke upon him and his yoke is easy and his burden is light and I find rest for my soul because there's a new government in place and I submit to the government and I say, God is orchestrating all the events of the universe for his own glory. Even these things that we cannot understand. But he's a mighty God and he's an everlasting father. He has this father-like care Jesus says the Father is in me and I am in the Father and he who has seen me has seen the Father. And yet they're distinct persons, yet Jesus is the exact image, express image of his Father. And he comes with fatherly care to protect his sheep, his children. He loves them and died for them. And he's an everlasting Father to them. And the idea of everlasting Father, he's the Father of eternity. He's the Father of time, forever. You're so safe in him. Jesus would have to split apart. The Godhead would have to split apart for you to come out. He's a heavenly father who's good. He's the everlasting father. And he's the prince of peace. You see, this idea of prince of peace is amazing because on a personal level, I mean, it's just idea of this shalom. This is how Alec Moyer Motir, from, from his prophecy of Isaiah commentary, says on a personal level, peace means fulfillment. To die in peace is to live a fulfilled life, to have achieved all God planned. Peace means well-being, it means freedom from anxiety. In relationships, it's goodwill and harmony, it's the opposite of war. Towards God, it's the full realization of his favor, peace with God. The Prince of Peace is himself, the whole man, the perfectly integrated, rounded personality, at one with God and humankind, but he's also a prince. And these benefits he administers to his people. And it's an empire indeed, but there's no imperialism. There is rule, but there's no exploitation. Rather, there's the endless sharing of his own perfect fulfillment and bringing those under his rule to perfection. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And so back to Sally Lloyd-Jones in her wonderful little Jesus storybook. She says it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece, the puzzle in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. Is that center puzzle piece in your life that makes all the rest of your life fit? That you have shalom in your life? There's integration. It comes together, it makes sense. Has the lights come on for you? Have you been delivered from darkness to light, from gloom and anguish to joy, to bondage to sin, to being released and having this new yoke upon you? Have you seen that he has sent his son and he's, he's brought us into his kingdom and now the government is on him and we can rest in his arms and we experience his grace and recognizing that his wisdom is so much greater than ours and his power is so much greater than ours that he is our father now and he's a prince of peace. Is that yours? If not, ask and it will be given to you. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, the Bible says. Come to him, find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Lord, what we need is you.
And Lord, we confess we do all this rushing and around the Christmas season, trying to find the right gift. We soon have buyer's remorse and we'll be disappointed on December 26th that all these things didn't satisfy our hearts. But you do. You give a peace that the world does not give. And you give hope and life, eternal life. And we wanna thank you that we can know why we were made, why we were put here in this world. We thank you that we can be made right and whole again for where we've screwed up and gone astray. And we give thanks to you, Jesus, that you're the great shepherd, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. We praise your name this day and we worship you. Come and bring your kingdom into our hearts deeper. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.